All right, welcome in to another Doomer Optimism podcast. I'm Nate, and I'm here with Jeffrey Bilbro. Jeff is a is it Jeff or Jeffrey? Jeff's fine. great. Jeff's fine. Great. Yep. Um, he's a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and has written and why I know him uh, for Front Porch Republic for how long have you written for them? Yeah, probably uh, over ten years now. Yeah, and I've been I'm getting old. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> I've been reading Front Porch Republic for longer than that. Good. Um, and have uh, <laughs> been. Um, that's how I first kind of came across Jeffrey's work. Jeffrey and I have also uh, sort of connected around Wendell Berry, both mutual um, admirers. We were in a group together that read his um, The Need to Be Whole recently. Um, and today I invited Jeff here because I thought we'd have a chat about agrarianism. Agrarianism is. Something that I think it's a word that's thrown around a lot lately. I think sometimes it's, you know, kind of refers to just sort of like um, gentleman farming or kind of like a rural way of life. Like it's very vague. And I think it's a term that gets uh, projected on a whole lot. Like like people just project their biases or their uh, they idealize it or they uh, dismiss it based on sort of their, um, yeah, projections onto it of whatever they might think that it's supposed to be, but I kind of wanted today to talk about what it actually is because there's a rich literature behind it, something that's been, um, you know, discussed and fleshed out in great detail over the years. Um, and, you know, some would argue it's something that our, our country is, is founded upon. Um, and uh, so it has a, a rich tradition and I kind of wanted to talk about this as, as sort of an introduction to it. I'm also fresh in my mind. I'm about... Um, Almost two thirds of the way through, for the first time I've ever read before, um, Anna Karenina. Um, oh, great! And it's blowing my mind. And I, I didn't, yeah. I, 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 you know, just hadn't read Tolstoy at all, and didn't realize that this he was such a, uh, I mean, it was such a foundational agrarian text. Really, I mean, it's it's an incredible yep. agrarian book. I don't want to talk about it too much today, though, because um, Jason and I had decided we were going to do a whole epi- episode on Anna Karenina. Um, so we'll kind of not dive too deeply into that, but that's me just setting the stage here for, for kind of the rough uh, outline of what we'll uh, dive into today. But so I guess my first question to you is um, if it isn't just sort of like farming <laughs> and the ideology of farming, what, what, what uh, st- maybe start with a, a very terse uh, definition of agrarianism and then we can kind of build out from there. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's uh, agrarianism is kind of inherently local, so it has many different strands, I guess you might say, different traditions, depending on where you are. And um, for centuries, uh, it was maybe under-articulated because it was just kind of the default. Every economy culture is more or less agrarian. Um, But, you know, you do get folks like Virgil, uh, other classic authors um, articulating variations of agrarianism. But I, I suppose as Americans, you know, we're in America, uh, it is, as you mentioned briefly, it is kind of one of the founding tenets of at least some of the um, early revolutionaries, early leaders of uh, the United States. And I suppose it would just be boiled down to something like um, a concern for local economies and local culture that is uh, sustainingly and um, caringly connected to the land, you know. So, yeah, not everybody has to be a farmer by any means, but, uh, but that the whole economy, the culture is oriented toward uh, taking care of the land, you know, is, is your topsoil becoming more fertile and uh, improving, or is it being drawn down? And that's kind of the mark of a healthy culture. Mm. Um, I know I said I wouldn't talk about it uh, much, but I just, you know, Levin, the character in yeah. uh, Anna Karenina, he is, uh, I think, talks about developing a science of the land and the pe- land and people. That's, that was his sort of uh, idea of this book he wanted to write, a science of the land and the people. Uh, which jumped out at me, you know, talking about um, place. 
Yeah. And, and I think, obviously, he embodies that in a novel in many ways. Um, and in the American context, you have uh, people like George Washington, who I think is, is most cited, at least his most cited Bible verse, is that passage from Micah, where the prophet says, you know, every man will um, rest under his own vine and fig tree. And that was kind of Washington's vision of a healthy state where every family has access to and is sustained by their own land. There's a kind of, um, obviously, Jefferson expands on that too with this kind of yeoman ideal that, that everyone has access to productive property. And hence you get this particular kind of culture where people um, yeah, imagine and understand their lives as sustained by the land that they're caring for. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me, like you kind of pointed out, like basically it was just the way things were, <laughs> you know, like this was just the way human life was basically agrarian for a very, very long time, pastoral agrarian. Um, I mean, of course there were nomadic peoples too, but like agrarianism is yeah. just sort of the background of human life. Um, and it seems to me that the big change in that you know, is the industrial revolution. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah. That that's sort of what set things, that cleaved things from an agrarian past to something very different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Barry talks about how when he went to uh, college, he didn't know the term agrarian and he just sort of was one, but he didn't have a term for it. And um, while he's at college, one of his professors said, you should read the 12 Southerners. Uh, because I think you're an agrarian. And he read the 12 Southerners. And in the, in the beginning of I'll Take My Stand, you know, their sort of statement of principles, their contrast is between agrarianism and industrialism. And I think at the time, in the, in the 1930s, when they were writing, that was somewhat um, unexpected, I guess, or somewhat edgy, because the dominant political uh, or economic um, battle seemed to be between capitalism and communism, right? Mm-hmm. It was like the West versus Russia or whatever. Um, but the agrarians point out that that really both industrial capitalism and industrial communism are variants of the same system, uh, one that's big and oriented around efficiency and production. They have some disagreements, but in essence, it's the same same system. And the true alternative, they would argue, is uh, agrarianism and a concern for widespread ownership of productive property and cultures based on the land. So I think, um, yeah, it's helpful to see agrarianism not as opposed to capitalism per se, but as opposed to uh, industrialism in all of its various manifestations. Yeah. And so we can tie in too, like I think one of the... uh better, certainly more entertaining, you know, writers on this too, is tied into the work of Chesterton. Yeah. You know, because he really beautifully skewered um, socialism slash communism and capitalism, you know, with with equal relish, just really funny and and talked about, I don't know that he, I don't know, I'm not, uh, yeah, I don't know, I'm not that familiar with his work, so I don't know if he would be considered agrarian so much as definitely distributist, localist. Yeah, I mean, Chesterton's book, uh, Outline of Sanity, and Hilaire Belloc's um, Servile, wow, what's his book called? The Servile State, isn't it? Servile State, yeah. I mean, those are kind of like the key books, I think, in the British distributist tradition, kind of drawing on the work of folks like John Ruskin, who, again, are, yeah, are not really, I mean, they're, they're not, as you put it, they skewer both kind of industrial capitalism and socialism. Um, so yeah, they don't tend to talk about themselves as agrarians, but I think most people now see the British distributists and the American agrarians as very much compatible, very much swimming in the same stream. Well, maybe it would be helpful to, then we, you know, as we think about and try to, to flesh out what we mean by agrarian, to, to sort of like what are the similarities of those two that make them compatible? That's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is um, a, uh, 
a belief, a conviction that there are cultural, economic, moral benefits to having control over productive property. And that any system that makes it hard for individuals or families to um, to own productive property, whether that be a farm or a small shop or manufacturing, um, it is going to innervate culture and kind of turn people into wage slaves and um, mindless consumers. So, so you know that, that the human person gets developed. This is obviously Jefferson's argument, and then it gets picked up by um, yeah by both the British distributists and the American agrarians. They make very similar arguments about the 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 the, the way that being responsible for um, your your own uh, livelihood cultivates certain virtues that maybe can't be cultivated um, if you are more passive or dependent upon somebody else to make all those difficult decisions for you. Hmm. And so in an American context, as you're talking about, like a, the, the yeoman farmer, the small farmer, sort of the paragon of this. And, and I don't think uh, Chesterton would disagree with that. He's written, he writes a lot about the, the, you know, the, the shop, the, right. family, the small shopkeeper and things like that. People who, who, you know, yeah, own their own. Um, and so kind of, distinct from obviously socialism communism but also from you know capitalism with the consolidating effect yeah. you know and the, and the corporatism and you know and whatnot like what would what would you how would you um you know people like a lot of people i think view capitalism merely as basically the the uh natural effect the natural endpoint of just the idea of private property generally. If people own private property, then they can buy it and sell it, and you kind of end up where we are now. So how's that? Yeah, yeah. You know, like a lot of people, when I yeah. discuss this with people, I mean, the capitalism is just sort of the natural outflow of of any system of private property. Whew. Yeah, this is complicated. Um, and, it is. and I am the first to admit that I'm not a professional economist. But I think in the British context, you see this maybe most acutely um, in the aftermath of the Reformation when... Uh, the crown can, takes the, the land from the Catholic Church, the, the uh, monasteries, and ends up privatizing those and kind of giving them off to various royal family or noble families that supported um, support those moves. And along with that, then you get the Enclosure Acts and all kinds of land in Britain that, you know, maybe was sort of owned by somebody, but uh, came along with a lot of lots of uh, rights to, for other people to graze on it, uh, graze their animals on it or use it. Uh, all that gets changed over decades. And um, that led to massive consolidation of property in Britain in ways that hadn't been the case for, for centuries. Um, and so in Britain, it became really impossible for small scale farmers to own their own property, right? You had the Lord who owns massive estates and then tenant farmers. Um, and, and there's a history there, right? It wasn't inevitable. There were particular choices that were made um, for political and other reasons. And, and then in America, I think, you know, there's obviously, uh, and we can talk about this too, but there's obviously a lot of dispossession that happens with mm -hmm. um, the colonists coming in and dispossessing the natives, Native Americans from their land. Mm -hmm. Um, so not to condone that in any way, but as the, uh, U S government makes that land then available to settlers, they do try to, the, the, the Homestead Act, the government does try to ensure, uh, and this is a very Jeffersonian idea that it's going to, uh, be owned by a lot of different people. And that each, you know, the homestead size is supposed to be like, how much property do you need to support a family? But for a lot of reasons, a lot of uh, corruption and uh, machinations of railroads and others, you know, particularly in certain parts of the country, very quickly, those plots get consolidated. And as property and capital are consolidated, it just becomes more and more difficult for uh, the smaller business person or the smaller farmer to um, to make a good living. So I think. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we, yeah, you're right that we tend to see um, kind of consolidated industrial capitalism as just the natural progression. It's clearly more efficient, right? Clearly, this is how things go. And um, I think there are ways of narrating the history in different countries of the consolidation of property that show, well, actually, uh, these are the choices that are made for political reasons, for you know, individual reasons, and it could have been otherwise, and it can be otherwise. There are ways to um, push the regulatory or legal sum on the other side of the scale and make it more uh, amenable to small-scale uh, property ownership. Yeah, yeah. It, it does, you know, I think that that's the mistake is that, you know, assuming because this is how it is, um, that this is sort of how it naturally is when we right. like cut our economy free and then this is the, you know, versus, right. well, this is the result of specific decisions that were made. Yeah. Um, and this, and this is the result of specific actions that were taken yeah. and they're no, they're neither inevitable nor, um, you know, that it was never inevitable. It was, a, yeah. you know, people deciding, uh, and likewise, the same as the case, you know, going forward. And so when, with agrarianism, I'm hearing, you know, there's, there's gotta be a priority placed on, um, individual owners of, of productive property and individual ownership of productive property. Um, and also I think this sort of emerging for me too, in, in agrarianism, there's always seems to be a, uh, you know, a real sense of uh, mutual obligation that doesn't seem to me to be present in, you know, capitalist ideologies. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And I suppose you could say part of that, yeah, part of that might be, um, simply the proximity to neighbors you know if if um your neighbors uh, if you work with and among your neighbors and you swap work and trade goods there's a kind of barter economy um then i think you know your neighbors in different ways and uh, are more inclined to chip in when they need help so uh, that's certainly the kind of argument that um that barry makes or the other agrarians make about why it is um that neighborliness might be declining in industrial capitalism or industrial socialism. You just sort of expect uh, that we're all individuals and we are related to the center. And, uh, you know, if my neighbor is struggling, well, some big agency will come in and help them out. And that's just how it's supposed to be. So, you know, I don't think that um, agrarianism is necessarily opposed to uh various forms of welfare, but it certainly is opposed to um, the, the kind of default assumption that uh, if if people need help, they're going to have to go to some central bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can, yeah, the, so we have the contrast again between kind of this uh, two-headed hydra of uh, capitalism and yeah communism and and sort of like agrarianism makes a distinction like those are two sides of a coin we're not picking a side here there's you know problems and um yeah there's virtues and problems with both but basically they rest on assumptions that we don't share yeah um and i think you know i think you can maybe chime in here too but i think a lot of agrarians are interested in uh picking and choosing some of the best from both systems you know Mm -hmm. uh, so usually agrarians do think that the best setup is private property, which is obviously capitalist. Um, but there's also real interest in various forms of commons mm-hmm. or of um, different ways of owning manufacturing that's like employ- employee owned. There's some really interesting ownership models that people are trying out in Europe and America um, that maybe feel like something like communism, but it's not really communism because it's not owned by the state. It's owned by uh, some kind of shared ownership among the workers. So I think there's, um, in general among agrarians, a real flexibility or openness to different forms of legal frameworks that would to, to, that would facilitate, that would encourage uh, people having a real stake in productive property. Well, and I think I think this kind of brings one of the one of the tensions here is I, I, you know within you know in that communism, we're all trained, in my opinion, to think in terms of the communist 
capitalist dichotomy. Like yeah, that's yeah. like we we are we think that way, right? So even like pointing out that like well those are just two arrangements. They're not the only two arrangements. It's not like this is the the scale of how things can be, and you have to pick one or the other. Like this is not the only two options, but we yeah. think that way. I yeah. think really deeply, it's in there. Um, and in general, you think of communist as as very collectivist, and you know capitalism as as hyper individualist. Um, and agrarianism is a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose an agrarian would want to say something like it's neighborly. Um, so it's not individualist in the sense of a kind of hyper-libertarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a concern for the neighbor and for the common good. Right? There's a real sense that my, the health of my land depends on the choices and um, actions of those upstream in a literal, but also a metaphoric sense. Um, but, but also a sense that I need to, um, take responsibility for my, my work, my actions. And and if I'm making mistakes, uh, there might not be, I might suffer for them, right? Like if I Mm -hmm. plow a certain way, if I plant a certain way, if I make business choices, uh, I might cause damage. I might, there might be repercussions. Um, there's no like big corporation or big uh, state to bail me out and and make those choices um, negligible. So, yeah, I think there are ways in which uh, an agrarian framework doesn't neatly fit into that dichotomy. And I think one of the tragedies, in my opinion, this is maybe, I don't know, but in my opinion, one of the tragedies of the last hundred years has been this sort of false dichotomy that has been established in global politics, global economics, and um, really obscures other alternatives. And it just, we can't even see or imagine these alternatives because we feel like we have to choose between industrial communism or industrial capitalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, a, uh, yeah, these two giant opposing, but also mutually reinforcing yeah. uh, ideologies sort of force force you to take a side, you know, yeah. um, it's like, you have to pick a side and these are, these are your choices because, you know, the ideology is, is, is sort of like, uh, so, uh, tightly argued that there's, you know, if, if you stay within the framework of thinking in that way, there's no way to not choose between two, you know, like right. the assumptions that they rest on, that's it. You know, um, these, these, these are your choices. Yeah. And I, I agree. That's part of, um, you know, I often talk about and get get going on ideology, and that's really what I'm referring to is the is the sort of the modern ideology. You know, and people will disagree with that too often and say, "Well, like ideology is just a, you know, it's just whatever you think. It's ideology, and that's not the case at all. An ideology right. is a is a is a is a system built yeah. about how the way things are and the way things should be. Yeah. Um, and it's a pretty and it's a very mo- ideology, in my opinion, is a very modern phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, so it's the way in which different ideas come to get grouped together and, and kind of sold as a package and um, makes it difficult to think more particularly and locally about questions because you have to subscribe to the whole package. So and, and that's... The, go ahead. I was going to ask, so this is a million-dollar question. Is agrarianism an ideology? Oh, that is a million-dollar question. I mean... Yeah, I, can you even say agrarian agrarianism? Right? Is it even an ism? Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- would say it has become probably to some extent a system of thought in response you know, over the last hundred years or so, hundred fifty years in response to industrialism. Um, but to the extent that agrarianism becomes a program, uh, yeah, it probably does betray its. Um, betray the very things, the very goods that it's trying to defend, because it really is um, a set of values, uh, a a kind of basic orientation to uh, the world and to one another that says this whole, you know, our lives depend upon the earth and the soil. And if we're not taking care of this, uh, it's all going to be, there are going to be moral and practical consequences. And so we should care for the soil and one another. And you know, I think a good agrarianism is fairly flexible and, and adaptable to different cultural, political contexts. So 
to the extent that it becomes like a program or political policy, then uh, yeah, it might be inherently corrupting. Yeah, it seems it seems tricky there. It does seem like, especially if you read, um, uh, you know, Barry, I think, but you know, other uh, agrarian writers, it, it seems like they're always trying to build in uh, enough wiggle room to not be ideological. Yeah, you know? like there's a real awareness of, I yeah. think, of of that corrupting sort of sense of of uh, basically putting yourself in a word cage. Um, you know, and I think that's a huge part, in, in my opinion, of how that tether to the land uh, is so vital is because, you know, like you have to be tied to something that isn't just a, a construct of your uh, rational mind. Yeah, because it's actually saying that our bodies matter, our places matter, and um, there we have a responsibility to work and to care for our neighbors, not just you know, with warm thoughts and well wishes, but with uh, work that cares for their bodies. So to that, to that extent, it gets you out of your mind, gets you out of the the structures of some political or ideological system and uh, sets you to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So another way of saying that might be that it's, it's, um, it's that it's, so when we talk about it, that it's localist, um, but it, it Another way of saying it might be that it's context dependent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Barry and others, I think, talk a lot about local adaptation that you're going to have to adapt. It's going to look very different. You know, maybe there's, for instance, you you mentioned this earlier, there are certainly some places on the planet where uh, agrarians will probably have to be nomadic, you know, like it's dry areas, uh, places that aren't really suitable for like settled human habitation. so yeah, it's going to look very caring for the land and living sustainably on it. It's going to look different in different places for sure. Yeah, no, uh, no rule book certainly. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the. So one of the things that always comes up seems to come up with agrarianism too is a sense that. Um, okay, so we, when we think think about it being, it's very closely tied to farming. Like we pointed out, it's not only about farming, but it is very tied yeah. to, you know, making a productive living off the land or, you know, um, being close to your food, um, things like that. Um, and so another thing that comes up in conversation all the time is that, you know, it's food production is, you know, it's simply economic activity and we should do whatever is um, most expedient to just produce food for the least amount possible. Um, looked at in very utilitarian terms. And there's a whole discussion about whether industrial food production is actually the best way to produce food um, on its own terms, just like making a volume of food, um, making healthy food, um, affordable food. And leaving those sides, those questions aside for a second, I think agrarianism would say that there is more to the production and consumption of food than economic activity. That it isn't simply uh, that the the way the manner in which we live off the land isn't simply economic um but also uh involves uh, a relationship of sorts and as a and as a relationship it entails you know you know mutual obligation it demands certain types of action uh you know from the person working the land and that in that in doing that it also produces or requires certain virtues in the in the producer uh, the the farmer, the owner, whatever, um, and that those are important, and those are important societal goals too. In addition to whatever economic activity we usually think of as farming. Yeah, I think that's right. That's kind of the Jeffersonian tradition, I suppose. Um, this notion that you know, even if, yeah, as you, I would, I'm not ready to concede this, but even if um, you know the Green Revolution and GMO farming, et cetera, is like the best way to produce calories for the least amount of energy or whatever. It's not, but we can concede it. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, even if that's the case, there's still something lost when um, most people are not involved at all with the care of their um, land and uh, their provisioning. So, you know, this is why in, our, in uh, essays like Think Little, uh, Barry comes back to just the 
personal cultural goods of growing a garden, right? Even if you're not going to like produce most of your calories, the act of growing a garden changes the way that you see uh, your neighbors, see the land, see your food. It makes you a different kind of person and it puts you in a different relationship to your food. So yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, it's just like, you know, we don't exercise or, you know, you don't ride your bike necessarily to get to your destination the quickest. You, you go for a walk or you ride your bike because it changes yourself and it changes your relationship to your place. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we shouldn't uh, think of persons as simply, you know, machines that need to have a certain intake of fuel to accomplish something, right? There's a, agrarians have a whole different view of the human person. Um, mm-hmm. One that's, I mean, the 12 Southerners kind of leave it vague, right? There's like this religious uh, component to the one's connection to the land. And, and there is something, uh, I think, spiritual or religious about agrarianism in the sense that it, that it refuses to reduce persons to like machines who need calories to function and be productive or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we're at the heart of it right now, personally. Um, and, um, you know, Wendell Berry has a great essay. It's a great essay, but the title of the essay says, I mean, to me, it just says everything you need to know about it, which is just a simple question of what are people for? Yeah. By asking that question, just by asking that question, I think it uh, underlies exactly what we're talking about. Like, is our purpose to simply be efficient and maximize production? Um, yeah, I, I think that that's, that, that, that sounds horrible. <laughs> um, that, that's, that, that's not what life is, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and yet we, you know, in these sort of, uh, ideologies that have sort of captured the 20th century completely, um, really that is what we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you see this with transhumanism, AI, all these things are just sort of the natural, um, outworking of these assumptions. Barry writes, I think this is in Life is a Miracle. He writes something to the effect that the next great division um, in the world will be between people who want to live as creatures and people who want to live as machines. And I think that's right. And Mm -hmm. so much of our discourse is dominated by people who want to live like machines, which sounds, sounds sad to me. So yeah. And if you think agrarianism is just about, we all need to be farmers, then I, I think it's these kinds of distinctions that you can't make, right? That agrarianism is a way of understanding persons as creatures fundamentally rather than just machines or widgets. Yeah, exactly. This is what I've been joking around a bit on Twitter a lot uh, with uh, this idea of, uh, you know, buffaloes versus robots. You know, it's exactly yeah. this, exactly that Wendell Berry quote you said. Yeah. Like it's exactly the same thing. You know, team team Buffalo or team robot, and, and team robot is recruiting pretty well these days. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, it's agrarianism is always, or at least uh, in recent centuries, marginal. But I also, I also hope, think, pray that maybe as um, as the machine closes in, you know, there's a kind of a growing awareness that. A growing dissatisfaction, I guess, with that. And um, folks like Barry and others who have been articulating this, this alternative vision for a long time um, will be there waiting for uh, people who are, are desperate for alternatives. And I think that's, I don't know, I, I'm not an expert on the whole doomer optimism community, but I think my sense of it is um, the people who gather here are those kind of people, right? Who, who may have this vague sense that, a world built for machines is not a world I want to live in and are mm-hmm. looking for hope elsewhere. Yeah, I would. I think so. I think that's a, a really um, common denominator and um, sort of a driving force. Um, it seems to me. Um, yeah. So. Um, backing up a little bit. Something that. I wanted to explore a little more um, was kind of get, then getting back to food and, you know, then contrasting sort of like the industrial food system that we're in. Yeah. Uh, because I think it gives a sense of the fullness, you know, of agrarianism as a way of life. 
um, is to just recall and imagine, I guess, the role of food in being a creature, in existing, um, and in and in a culture and in a community. You know, and and if you think of a a particular place, you know, in which you know a particular place might have a particular type of uh, soil environment um, ecology that supports the production of certain types of food, you know, and then because it does that, you know, the culture of the people that live on the land becomes built around, you know, cultivating that type of food and working together to cultivate that type of food. And then because they can cultivate that type of food, they, they, they find preparations of that food that keeps well, that tastes good, that is nourishing. And so then a huge amount of the behavior of the people then becomes oriented around this common purpose of producing a particular kind of food in a particular kind of way and then having uh, dishes, types of foods, like like foods that are characteristic to that culture, to that place. And again, all these things are, are binding a people together because they all are something in common. This is not, it's not global. It's not abstract. It's, you know, we grow this, we know, you know, you know how it's grown. Um, you might not be the person growing it, but you might, might be more involved in, but, but there's such an involvement in the people and how you eat and then how you prepare the food. And then that creates an entire culture around it. That is a basis for culture. Food isn't just a, isn't just a thing you do and you spend whatever, you know, 8% of your income on and, you know, you don't think about it anymore. And, you know, in an agrarian way, it's like a, you build around that. And yeah. again, again, there's a, a virtue to that. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, people might say, well, I don't want to spend more. I don't want to think about food. It's just fuel for my body. But then if we step back and really look at that, I mean, how is that working out for us? Yeah, it's not working out um, health wise, obviously, but it also takes away one of the primary um, constituents of healthy communities, as you pointed out, this way that, that food draws people together. And I think one of the particularly sad parts of global industrial culture today is the way in which all of these local food cultures can be kind of commodified and turned into commodities. I guess that's what commodified means, turned into <laughs> consumer goods that tourists or whatever can um, can consume. But it's it's like you're missing out on the on the culture, if you're not actually involved in the, the creation or the preparation of these foods. So I think it's sad that e even something so integral to human culture, like these food cultures, can be turned into a good that can be marketed and sold uh, for corporate profit. Yeah. There was a discussion, I can't remember the details, I didn't pay much attention about, like, well, what's, what's a burrito versus what's a taco versus what's a calzone versus what's pizza? And so, yeah. like, well, it's all the same thing. It's just, you know, industrial ingredients mixed together and put in a package and sold. Um, if it's, if it's you know, completely divorced from, you know, where it came from, it becomes yeah. not what it was. It's not really right. what it was. It's not a burrito anymore. Um, it's, that's the brand name for this type of, uh, this type of packaging that we do. It's, 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 it's not what it was anymore. Now I'm not saying that the, there aren't, you know, those authentic things, but that's not what you're getting, you know, and, and that, and that's whatever <laughs> that's, um, it just isn't, um, be, you know, once it becomes separate from how it, how it was produced, um, and all of the, you know, the, uh, you know, cultural infrastructure around it that is required to produce it um you know then it's just a sort of a disembodied thing um kind of like all of us i guess <laughs> i guess that's yeah. the, the forces that are at work on all of us we all become these alienated disembodied things yeah and i think there are obviously opportunities to re-engage or recover the remnants of food cultures that remain that looks different um, but I think it begins with just recognizing the value of that um, and doing the work. You know, it's going to take more time and more work on your part, but um, but it will connect you to your place and the people who have lived there and the people who still live there in ways that um, I think are rewarding and um, remind you of like what you're for, right? There's a sense in which you're for that kind of care and that belonging to the people in the place. Uh, food is one of these great 
conduits of that kind of belonging. Yeah, and it and it is beyond, and this is why it is beyond simply about farmers because everybody yeah. everybody eats. Um, yeah, uh, that's not unique to to people who grow the food. Right. Um, so it, it it is a it, it isn't just its scope isn't so small as being only farmers. Um, although I think um, there is sort of a it seems to me a position of privilege within agrarianism for the people directly farming. I mean, at least not, not necessarily uh, that it inherently always has to be that way, but just it seems like there's a recognition that the production of the food is pretty foundational, um, yeah. which to me kind of is, it's kind of a no brainer. I think, um, I think it's kind of funny. I always get, um, you know, especially people become offended like genuinely offended if you sort of suggest that, hey, you know, you could, you know, grow some of your own food. It's like, you know, we'd like, um, you know, the idea that maybe we might ever do, the world might ever exist such that more people had to be involved in growing food is just offensive to people. Um, as if the industrial arrangement that we've just found for like the last 50 years is somehow you know, inherent and, uh, we have solved the problem yeah. of food. Yeah. Like it's just a thing that humans have solved. We figured it out. We don't have to think about food anymore. We can free up ourselves to whatever the hell is on TikTok. We can spend yeah. hours doing that now because we don't have to think about food. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting question. You know, like to what extent, I guess we've circled back to this a couple of times, but to what extent is agrarianism, um, privileged farming, uh, it, you know, so the 12 Southerners who wrote, I'll take my stand, most of them were not active farmers at the time. And, and many of them moved away from the places where they grew up because they were academics, you know, like me, I don't, I don't live where I grew up because I'm an academic and I had to go where the job is. And, uh, Wendell Berry, when he was a young man, he wrote several essays, one of which was pretty critical to Southern agrarians for like making agrarianism yeah, kind of an ideology or a culture rather than recognizing its embodied roots. And later on, he apologized for that. It's like, oh, I was a little bit too too um, harsh, I guess. And he, but he, and so he backtracks a little bit in terms of like, you know, people are caught in systems that they don't uh, want, can't control, and people make choices for complex reasons. Um, but I think there is still an element in which you would want to say, yeah, there's a, there is a priority on people who are provisioning uh, their communities and caring for the land in ways that are uh, going to make it, going to pass it down to the next generation. So I think it's, a, it's tough to get that right. Like to say on the one hand, agrarianism absolutely is concerned about food and land care. And at the same time, you can be an agrarian uh, in the city. I think both mm -hmm. of those are true, but it, yeah. it can be tricky to make that make that uh, tension always um, clear. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. Um, and it is that you know the the farmer, in addition to producing the food within this, is sort of the go between or sort of the ambassador between the humans humans and and the land we're on. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, because they're right there. And, you know, the farmer determines ideally what the land can produce, you know, what the land can produce in a way that doesn't degrade the land. Um, and like, you know, what's of it like, so by practicing their craft in a skillful way, you know, getting as much as possible from the land without taking too much. Um, and that being determined again in that relationship between the farmer and the land, in a, in a, I think in an agrarian system, that's how that 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 is that's that relationship. Now that's not the relationship we have today. The relationship we have today is this is what's needed, you know, and this is the price you're going to get. So it's like it, it's very extractive by its nature. It's not it's not that conversation. There's no um, there's not a, there's no mutuality in it. It's one yeah. way. Yeah, and there should be some, as you put it, that mutuality between the eater and the grower so that the grower can say, um, this is what we can grow. You know, this is in season. This is what the land will bear. Uh, I'm sorry if you want this kind of food, right? 
And, and yeah, on the other hand, I suppose the eaters can push back and say, well, I would like, you know, is this possible, right? There's an interplay and it should be um, one that's mutually corrective. So sometimes the consumers need to say, I got to change my tastes. I have to cultivate a taste for this vegetable this time of year Mm -hmm. Um, rather than simply, um, yeah, a consumer market driven thing where this is the demand. So you got to meet it somehow. Right. If you live in grasslands, um, you're going to need to like beef and lamb. <laughs> you're just going to need to. <laughs> well, also, yeah, absolutely. Well, also, you know, recognizing that it's going to be more costly than uh, going down and buying feedlot beef, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But yeah. Yeah, that's a whole, and we can, I mean, I, I'm pretty okay leaving that question alone for today. The, the <laughs> that's probably well hashed over. Yeah. The economics of it all, because then it gets mixed up with, you know, with, with policy. And I mean, it is mixed up in this conversation because the whole thing is built around capitalist assumptions that are extractive by nature. Um, so you can't, but that's a, just a whole rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a but I think one. one of the reasons it's a rabbit hole is that whole conversation often, you know, you're talking past each other because yeah. people say, well, look at the, you know, look at the uh, economics and you're like, well, yes, but how have we set up a system? And it's been set up around um, industrial large-scale capital. So that's why it works so well, mm-hmm. but it could be arranged otherwise. Yeah, again, it's that inevitable question of like, yeah. well, is, is it this way because it's inevitable and it would have to be yeah. this way and there's no other way? Or is it simply a result of choices that we have made um, again and again and again, how we've yeah. chosen to organize ourselves? Yeah. Um, I don't think... I mean, I don't believe that it's at all sustainable to relate to the land in the way that we are, you know, living in the Midwest, as I've I've mentioned on this, on this podcast many, many times, you know, it's extremely depopulated, you know, where I live. Um, There aren't enough, you know, eyeballs and hands to properly care for the land, you know, so you have machines that don't obviously care for the land, um, you know, that extract from the land. Uh, and that's the nature of agriculture at the moment for the very vast part. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's this extractive um, system and we don't, but we just simply don't have the people and we don't have the ability to get people who are even interested onto land in, in many cases. Um, I don't know, you know, if land became suddenly available, like, like if it became much more affordable and available people if there would be people who would come and want it um i you know um, um maybe there would be i don't know it seems like i talked to a lot of people who would love to be able to but i don't know um but that's a, there's two questions there one we'd be making it available and two if it was available would people uh embrace that opportunity yeah i don't know but i i agree that i guess it's the circles i run in i know a lot of people who want land um, but it, it is so difficult to access now. And, um, and if you, if you can come up with the cash needed to, to buy the land, then you kind of have to farm according to the game that's out there and, and make a lot of money. Right. So you, you have to pay back your capital costs and mm-hmm. that's what makes it so hard to, um, to do the kind of labor, uh, person intensive agriculture that actually stewards the land well. Yeah, I mean, if you become, I mean, if you're dependent on loans and banks and things like that, you know, then they're going to sort of dictate a lot of your practices, actually. Um, And so it it is, it can be kind of a, not kind of a trap, but I mean, it can definitely be a trap. So it's a pretty unique situation to be able to, you know, um, uh, freely enter into a relationship with land in which you can really pay attention to the land and give it exactly what it needs and that you can actually develop that relationship that's been... You know, a huge part of what, I mean, we've been here 11 years and, and that's, that's the, you know, trying to get to know and understand and learn basically how to farm, but more than just that, like what the place run needs and what it sort of wants to produce, if you could put it that way, yeah. um, versus what we need, um, you know, uh, and, and what the resources that we have, um, and the pressures coming, you know, from outside onto the place saying like, Hey, you know what? 
this needs, you know, we need to extract, we need to extract from you, from the land. Um, that's a, it's a hard balance to strike. Yeah. Very toxic. I think it's in people and in community about, you know, ideally the farmer comes to a piece of land with this vision where he or she wants to, the land to grow. And over time, that vision is corrected by what the land can produce sustainably. Um, and there's this sort of mutual correction and learning that happens over time. But that gets shortcut uh, when land prices are high and when every generation the land has to you know, produce enough commodity crops to pay for itself again. Uh, and, and when that's the case, then it's necessarily going to be an exploitive relationship. Yeah, it just needs a little more, more, a little bit more, a little bit more, um, you know, and uh, yeah, wow. Um, I just having a thought um, that I hadn't had before just about my own role and feeling, you know, kind of like a intermediary in between that sometime and trying to protect, you know, the, where I'm at from those um, uh forces of exploit exploitation, but by putting myself in as the intermediary between those two, uh, that's a, that I, I experience that often as a pretty pl painful place to be. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, it is really amazing how you've, you know, you mentioned that you, you kind of go in with your, the, the plans that you have of, of, of what you think is, is, is a good idea. And then you start applying it and you see where you were wrong and where you were right and where you can adapt it and what, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty remarkable thing to be doing it for long enough where you sort of start to feel like the place is talking to you a little bit. Yeah. You're starting to, to hear what it's saying. Um, and, um, and I think that that is, uh, that's why I, that's why I personally, that's why I moved here because I've always been, and, and this brings up, I think another thing I want to talk about, about agrarianism, which is sort of the relationship and or tension between agrarianism and environmentalism. Um, you know, because I think a, a lot of, uh, you know, there's obviously for good reason, a lot of, uh, concern for the health of our planet. Um, and that's been sort of felt, you know, kind of run through sort of, uh, environmentalism and i wonder sometimes if uh, environmentalism isn't kind of infected with the same uh capitalist communist dichotomy uh sort of industrial thinking uh that 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 we've been talking about today was mainstream environmentalism kind of which again i generally support i mean i support the idea of a healthy environment i support the idea of protecting the planet like i'm i, I am an environmentalist I, I i don't mind saying that but you know i, I think that it's there's a type of thinking, it seems like increasingly so, that's infected by this sort of, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, communist capitalist dichotomy or yeah. whatever I want to call it. Yeah, I mean, it becomes a kind of corporate process of, uh, you know, no one actually wants to do the work. Uh, people just want to reap the benefits and feel, feel good about yourself and kind of pass the buck on. <clears throat> and, you know, I think a lot of agrarians are frustrated by environmentalism to the extent that it, um, you know, kind of privileges abstract numbers and quantities and doesn't actually value particular places. And maybe that's unfair. You know, I think, uh, but, but part of that too is that environmentalists don't often don't really want to change the mode of life. They don't really want to get their hands dirty. You know, so that's why electric cars are so awesome. Mm -hmm. I don't actually have to change anything. You know, I can get an electric car and just plug in and, as opposed to fill up the tank, but my lifestyle doesn't change. I can still drive. I don't have to do the, do any work differently. Um, and, and agrarianism indicate, you know, suggests that there's like a moral responsibility we have to work. Um, so it's not like we're just going to preserve chunks of wilderness over there and then abuse these places and hope it all comes out in the wash. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to say that you, your life has to be, responsibly related to your place and that's going to require sacrifices it's going to require um yeah uh, maybe a change in lifestyle and work so uh it's less of a easy sell i suppose 
But I think that's why uh, a lot of agrarians, you know, like Paul Kings North or, or, uh, or even somebody like James Rebanks, to, to mention two British farmers, um, are, are kind of in an uneasy relationship with uh, modern environmentalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that, that moral responsibility and that, that it's a direct one. You know, it's like, a, yeah. like you said, getting your hands dirty, managing your place. It, it involves, um, you know, management decisions. It involves manipulating your environment. You know, sure. And, um, I think it, it, you know, it takes, you know, popular term these days. I mean, it takes our, our um, role as sort of a keystone species. It's like, you know, we're, you know, like I'm on the land I live at, like I'm the, the manager of it. Like I am manipulating it all the time. Like I'm not in control of it. Like it's right. not sure. carried away, but I am, I, you know, constantly um, tweaking and um, moving this and cutting this tree down and planting this tree over here. And, you know, to, to see how the, you know, the land responds and it, you know, it's a very, very active management. It isn't setting it aside or leaving it alone. Um, and I think that's more, you know, like within environmentalism, and I, I know uh, when I was more of an environmentalist than I am now, at least as belonging to that set, I guess you might say, um, you know, it's much like you go, go on hikes, go out, you and kind of enjoy nature right? Like, and there's a love of nature. I think there is a commonly a love of nature, but it's just a very different thing than um, nature being something in which you're on sort of friendly, sometimes unfriendly terms, but relational terms. I guess that's the way to put it, relational terms. And so it's, it's, it's not a, it's, you know, it's not something you're just merely stepping back and observing, um, and appreciating it's a, it's a relationship, which really to me, I say, if I were offering my own personal uh, definition of agrarianism, I'd say it's a, a, the philosophy of living in relationship period. This is like, it's, it's, it's fundamentally relationships. Everything is yeah. relationships between the people and the land, between the people and each other, um, direct relationships. So I, to me, that's, that's, that's sort of how I think about it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's why, uh, I mean, Aldo Leopold talks about being a member of the land community. And uh, of course, Wendell Berry thinks a lot about membership, both mm-hmm. with other persons and with the place. So yeah, I think um, that notion of responsible membership, responsible belonging, and figuring out how to uh, how to exercise those relationships. Well, Barry writes something, I think this is an unsettling. He says, you know, the so-called identity crisis that and he's right back in the seventies, uh, but I don't think the identity crisis has gotten any better since then. But he says that it's built upon this false premise that like we are individuals who can choose who we want to be. And he mm. said, practically speaking, uh, we only have a choice between responsible dependence and irresponsible dependence on other people and, and our places. Mm. Um, and so he obviously would recommend uh, doing the work to become responsibly dependent upon our places and our communities. So yeah, I think if you, if you want to boil agrarianism down to to uh, the effort to be resp- a responsible member, I think that's that's pretty good. Oh, I, I, I think it recorded, but I think I didn't hear a lot of what you just said. I have, see, I have agrarian internet. So, um, <laughs> so every once in a while, I was just agreeing with you, just saying, uh, yeah, agrarianism as responsible membership seems like a pretty good definition. Yeah. Um, you, you're, you are uh, proving your true cred. It's good. <laughs> um, well, yeah, we keep, you keep, uh, which of course I love, uh, quoting Barry and he, when I moved here 11 years ago, you know, it was move. I moved from Denver to here, you know, and um, I grew up in the, in the country, but then I, you know, had lived in the city and whatnot and moved here. And one of the first things I did was I started, I get, I was like, Wendell Berry had been sort of somebody I'd planned on reading. I kind of, I was a big fan of Wes Jackson and oh, yeah. I just hadn't read yet. And so I started reading him when I moved here and uh, for about three or four years, it was the only thing, he was the only thing I read and I read um, everything. Um, and so like, he just, um, has changed the way I think about things in a, just a, the combination of reading him and then being here changed the way I think about everything. Yeah. 
Um, and to me, the most impactful thing um, and why I think when, you know, when thinking about agrarianism, and I'm, I'm noticing this too, reading Anna Karenina, I, I kind of think the best way to communicate agrarianism might be the novel. I mean, I just think that what varies novels and that like, it's one thing to talk about it, but when you can get a sense and you can feel it in the way these writers write about it, there's something about agrarian novels, I think, that just communicates what it is better than just about anything. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I when I first read Barry's essays, I was very uh, argumentative in the margins. I didn't, I pushed back a lot. And then I read some of his novels and I got a sense of what he was up to. And then when I went back to the essays, they made a lot more sense. And I was... Mm-hmm. I was persuaded and changed. So yeah, I think when I teach Barry, I always try to teach the novels, the short, short stories, because you can experience membership. You can experience this vision of the good in ways that you can't just argue. I mean, even in the novels, like I'm thinking this comes up many times, but um, Barry's dad, uh, who, who is fictionalized as Weather Catlett, has this story that he's standing in Washington, D.C., trying to decide what job to take. And he has this vision of cattle grazing on green grass and the whole culture and economy that enables that vision to exist. And he says, that's what I want to serve. You know, he's, he wants to serve this vision of beauty. Yes. It's not like some argument that he went home and did some spreadsheets and did a cost benefit analysis and said, this is going to be more profitable. He said, you know, what kind of life do I want to live and what goodness do I want to serve? Yes. Um, I, I actually have this, the passage, because um, uh, it's one that uh, when I read it, it's, um, is, you know, I, I was just talking about how Barry influenced me. And this packet, passage that you're talking about in particular has stuck in my mind for um, probably a decade, give or take. Yeah. Um, because it was so powerful to me. Like I took that vision of Wheeler Catlett's and I just wholeheartedly adopted it as mine. And I haven't been able to, I couldn't remember which, you know, where, where it was because it was, yeah, I couldn't remember where it was. And so it was actually an article of yours I was searching for and, and you quoted it. I'm like, that's the, so it helped me kind of track, track down that, pa- that passage. Um, but let me look, cause I actually have it here. Um, and uh, if yeah, I the can... one that I always think about is in remembering. Is that what you're thinking of? Yes, that is. Yeah. Um, if uh, well, um, as he weighed this decision between being a you know he was talking about being a lawyer, um, moving to Chicago versus staying here, and he said, "Do I want to spend my life looking?" out a window onto tarred roofs, or do I want to see good pastures and the cattle coming to the spring in the evening to drink? Wheeler chose to return home, and years later, his son, thinking about his uh, father's long life in the place, realized how firmly and unendingly fascinated his father had been by that imagining of cattle on good grass. It was a vision finally given the terrain and nature of their place, a community well-founded and long-lasting. Wheeler held himself answerable to that. Um, yeah, that's one of the passages, you know, sometimes you read something and it just, um, changes you. Yeah. And that's one for me. Um, because that vision of cattle on good grass is something that I feel, you know, I, I can touch that and I, you know, I see it and, uh, it's, it, it, it has a power to it, um, that, you know, organizes and motivates me. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good way of summing up the whole ethos of agrarianism, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we did a I think we did a a nice a, a nice introduction to agrarianism. Are there you know I guess as we can think about winding up here, are there any uh, other uh, thoughts or anything that you would like to add? No, I mean, I would just say, you know, if people are interested in, in thinking more, there's obviously, you know, you can go read Chesterton, you can go read uh, Belloc, you can go read Jefferson. But I think some of Barry's essays like um, whole, The Whole Horse or uh, Work of Local Culture um, do a nice job, too, of just kind of give, giving a sense of agrarianism as a way of life and not just agrarianism equals 
um, being a farmer, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can be a farmer and not be an agrarian, and you can live in the city and be an agrarian, I think. So, um, there are plenty of farmers who are not agrarians. Yeah, days. obviously. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I think your opening was helpful in, in, uh, correcting maybe that common misconception. And, um, you know, I, I think also, I'm, this is just idiosyncratic, I suppose, but I'm teaching this environmental ethics course here at the college right now. And this week we're reading a book, uh, by Ellen Davis called, scripture, culture, and agriculture about the Bible and agrarianism. And she kind of reads the Old Testament mm. through an agrarian Wendell Berry, West Jackson lens. And one of the points she makes at the beginning is that our environmental crisis, our climate crisis, is not primarily a technological problem to be solved, but it's a moral problem. Mm-hmm. And it's going to need um, a sort of moral, imaginative uh, solution, first of all. And I think that's what agrarian is up to. Like yes. agrarians recognize the problems we face as cultural and moral primarily. Um, and the technical questions are downstream of that kind of perceptible shift. Absolutely. That's a great point. I'm glad you said that because I, I couldn't agree more. Um, couldn't agree more that that's, I think that that's what, um, that is the stance of agrarianism. And that's my belief for, yeah. very well is that, you know, all like, and I think that's a lot of the disillusionment, I think with in, environmentalism, that's increasingly technocratic that assumes it is just a technical fix, you know, and it's the same thing with food. It's a technical fix to produce the most food. And really, you know, these, these problems are, um, you know, moral, uh, uh, you know, they're in, they're in us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and we, uh, and cultural, moral and cultural. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. This was a, I want I'm, I'm working on this book right now too, among others. I don't know if this is, this is kind of a neat one. Um, the agrarian vision by Paul Thompson. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm enjoying that. Um, I mean, that whole series, uh, cultural land is a great series from Kentucky press. Mm, okay. I have, yeah, I, I, uh, wasn't familiar with the rest of it, but I will look that up. Yeah. Uh, any other sort of recommendations uh, for people who kind of want to learn more? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a, one of my friends, Bill Major, has a pretty good book, like agrarian, agrarianism. Uh, he calls it new agrarianism, and it's kind of for academics. But, you know, if you're just a regular Joe. And so he's trying to put agrarianism in conversation with a bunch of recent cultural theory. I think it's a good job. Uh, but I, yeah, I just think if you want to get an introduction, it's better just to start with some Wendell Berry novels or, um, so yeah, some agrarian fiction. So, Gosh, he, he pretty much is the beginning and the end of this really. Yeah. Or I Hey, mean, Anna Karenina, Tolstoy is not bad at all. So that's, that's yeah. good too. Uh, that's really been, uh, I didn't realize, uh, I no. just read it cause my, my son got interested in Russian fiction. He started reading it. I'm like, well, I haven't read it. I'll read it. And I had no idea what to expect other than, you know, Tolstoy's a legend, but I'm reading it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and beautiful. Yeah. That's yeah. great. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. And, uh, yeah, this is a, a great conversation. I hope people, uh, um, kind of get stimulated on you know thinking more specifically about what agrarianism is and less just generally so yeah thank you yeah thank you nate it's fun